3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am and today is Tuesday the 15th of August. My name is Fung and today I'm joined by Ivka and Carnegie. Good morning. Good morning. So (laughs) I guess we need to talk about it. We do. The big ticket item at the moment, what everyone is talking about. Yes. The game against France. Yes. Where were you? What What was your reaction? <laughs> How were you feeling during the longest penalty shootout of all time? I was at the pub, like a lot of other people around Melbourne, I'm sure, especially in this pub. It's, it's a, like a sports pub, I suppose. Like they had anywhere you were in the pub, you could see a TV, uh, which is why I guess so many people went there. Um, so it was very packed, but people, younger people, I suppose, people that I felt weren't normally into sports necessarily, which, you know, I, I'm one of those people as well. So it was great. But yeah, it was so busy and it was electric, to be honest. I think I hadn't really realised that's what happens when there's a nil all draw at the end. And that I remember saying to someone, and what happens like when they get to the end of the five and they were like, it just keeps going. <laughs> I was like, it just keeps going. I don't know if my nerves can take this. So I actually didn't watch parts of it because I, yeah, get stressed. I'm like that with a lot of TV shows. If there's the stressful time, I have to look away. So it was a very emotional experience. How about you? Yeah, I mean, the same. It was so tense. I, at one point, had to just stand up. I was at home watching it. At one point, I had to stand up and just start pacing around the room <laughs> I, I get could, that I could yeah. not sit still yeah I could not sit still put the energy into something yes um and there was a lot of yelling when when Courtney Vine got it in I was more vocal than I would have expected I didn't know I had it in me so that was exciting and I think I just I can't stop thinking about how cool it is that's there's so many more words than that but like it is such a big moment and that so many people are engaging it just it really just goes to show what we've sort of thought for ages that if you put time and effort and money into women's sport uh it's still not on the same level as the men's obviously but people will watch and people will love yeah definitely they've broken so many records in terms of viewers biggest sporting event of the decade like most viewers i think in more than both grand finals last year and yeah, I mean, it helps that they're good. Definitely. <laughs> but it is still, it's still a really exciting moment. And, yeah, just thinking about all young people that could get inspired and get into a sport that they may not have before, I just I really can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, well, I'm sure we will be talking a lot more about the Women's World Cup 
later in the show. I don't know. I'm still obsessed. I'm sure everyone mm, is. Yes, and next week's show will either be celebrating or commiserating, but we will yes, be talking about exactly, it again. Exactly, yes. yes. Stay tuned. Um, so let's chat about what we've got on today's show. Uh, so first up, we're going to hear um, – we're going to replay an interview that Priya from Thursday Breakfast had with Lara Week, who is a resident of Techno Park Drive in Williamstown. Um, they spoke earlier this month about the eviction notices that have been issued by Hobson's Bay Council. Afterwards, uh, we'll be hearing from Vanessa Keogh from uh, WWF, who spoke with Carnegie about Australia's shocking rates of deforestation and then we'll be uh, showcasing a bunch of interviews for our Science Week special. So up first uh, we'll be speaking with Professor Nicola Henry who is a socio-legal scholar with over 20 years of research experience in the sexual violence field and her research is on technology-facilitated sexual violence and image-based sexual abuse. And uh, so this is all part of our Science Week special on artificial intelligence, um, data sovereignty and automation. Afterwards, we'll be speaking with Dr Emily Steele, who is an occupational therapist, lecturer and researcher. And Emily will join us on the show to talk about AI and the rights of persons with disabilities and how AI and new technology can um, help uh, persons with disabilities but also perpetuate harm. And we'll round out the show this morning. Uh, Lizzie O'Shea will be joining us. Lizzie is a lawyer and writer and her commentary is regularly featured on TV programs and radio, often about law, technology or human rights. So Lizzie is a founder and chair of Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for human rights online. And Lizzie will be joining us this morning to discuss AI, facial recognition technology and its implications and uh, over-policing. Great. So we've got a really exciting show coming up. We'll be back with the news headlines right after this. The Seamen Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter.
Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today. So as Yvka and I already spoke about, Saturday night the Matildas won their game against France in a very intense penalty shootout, which they won 7-6. to six. They will play England in the semifinals on Wednesday evening. And now to um, the Melbourne Uni uh, there's a stop work action planned for um, the 28th of August 2023. Um, the branch membership voted early August for a stop work action unless significant progress is made towards achieving the branch's priority claims. Members also voted to work over the coming weeks to organise meeting workplace um, to determine the strike readiness of their work areas in order to join the longer strikes already voted on by some work areas. Um, to do this, uh, local work area meetings will be called to democratically determine the strike readiness of those areas for longer stop work action, which can effectively limit the operations in those areas. Um, the membership also called on its members to donate to the University of Melbourne Branch Strike Fund to help support income relief for strikers. And now at La Trobe University, um, there will be a strike on the 17th of August, so in two days' time, from 10am to 2pm. Uh, staff at La Trobe are striking because 60% of staff are experiencing symptoms of burnout and 54% of staff say they're not given enough time to do their job well. They are striking for fairer workloads, for no increase in annual hours worked and a fair pay rise to meet inflation. In other education news, the New South Wales Independent Education Union has given the green light to protected industrial action if an ongoing teacher's pay dispute in the state isn't resolved by Friday. The union met late last week to consider the progress of negotiations between the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the New South Wales government, which publicly broke down earlier this month. At the meeting, the executive passed a motion authorising protected action if the standstill continues. So it will meet again this Friday, 18th of August, to discuss details of the potential strikes. And as we mentioned earlier, um, this week is Science Week. And as part of Science Week, across all the breakfast shows, we'll be interviewing uh, people and having discussions about artificial intelligence, automation and data sovereignty, looking at what's positive about this new technology, but also a lot of the harm and a lot of the dangers involved. So just uh, another reminder that today on Tuesday Breakfast, we'll be speaking with Professor Nicola Henry, um, looking into 
tech-facilitated sexual violence and image-based sexual abuse. We'll be speaking with Dr. Emily Steele uh, about the rights of persons with disabilities and AI and how and how the two intersect. And finally, we'll be speaking with Lizzie O'Shea about facial recognition technology and over-policing, as well as the future of automation within the context of robo-debt. Um, so make sure you stay tuned to all the breakfast shows this week as we'll be covering a lot um, across this area, which should be a really interesting week of content. Okay, we're going to go to our first track for this morning. Uh, this is by Discovery Zone, who um, is the moniker of musician and multimedia artist JJ Vile, who is also a founding member of the experimental pop project Fenster, and this is their song New Moon. That was Discovery Zone with their song, New Moon. Lara Week, a resident of Techno Park Drive in Williamstown, joined Priya on Thursday breakfast with an update about the campaign by Techno Park residents to stay in their homes in the wake of eviction notices issued by Hobson's Bay Council, which decided to enforce the area's long-standing industrial zoning in May of this year, despite it being used for residential accommodation since the post-World War II era. Here is that conversation. Laura, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Priya. 
Yeah, so since you spoke with my colleague Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on the 15th of July, it appears that Hobson's Bay Council's primary form of collective engagement with Techno Park Drive residents has been a renewed effort to enforce compliance with that initial order to cease residential use. So can you tell us a bit about what's happened since then and especially what happened on the 21st of July? Uh, On the 21st of July, Hobson's Bay Council sent a compliance officer and um, and a colleague of his to hand deliver new notices to Techno Park Homes. Um, this compliance officer is someone with numerous uh, complaints against him by Techno Park residents for how he's treated people when they called to say, um, as they were directed in the first notice, that they'd experienced hardship if they had to leave their home immediately. People said he was degrading and frightening. Um, the notice that he hand-delivered starts by apologising if people were upset by the first notice and then reiterates basically the same thing, that people have to make contact with the council individually so that the council can consider extensions of time based on their individual situations. Um, but this one also offers referrals to mental health services um, the response from people here has just been that that is so <laughs> insulting. Mm. Um, my neighbour, Helen, who's 70 this year, said it was lipstick on a pig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just seems so inappropriate. And I mean, this goes to my next question, because the Techno Park Residents Association have prepared a briefing document that outlines the history of residential use of the area and identifying that it has been and continues to be safe for residential occupation despite its industrial zoning since 1988, I believe. So I was hoping that you could speak to the brief discussion of the, quote, current and imminent risk, end quote, to resident safety that comes from the eviction notice itself and how that safety consideration is featured in conversations with the council considering they're now bringing up things like mental health supports? Mm. Yeah, the council has said a number of times that it's not safe to live here because of our proximity to a tank farm, but Mobile have said that those tanks are empty and have been for years, so they actually contain no hazards. Um, however, the council's threat against our homes has caused people enormous fear, insecurity and distress. You know, it impacts people at every level of their lives. And I don't understand how since RoboDebt there is any government who doesn't understand that when you threaten people's livelihoods, you threaten people's lives, Mm. you know. Um, So there's the risk to people's, uh, you know, people who are not vulnerable because they have secure housing, um, the, the... the action of council creates a risk to, the, to us, you know, mm-hmm. both in terms of mental health and in terms of physical safety. People have already been made homeless by this notice. Mm-hmm. The letter said you must cease residential use immediately or face legal action. There are landlords and real estate agents who, who took the council at their word and did exactly as they were instructed by Hobson's Bay Council in the notice, and they kicked their tenants out that day. Mm. We know that people who are forced to leave their homes don't end up in safe situations, you know, whether that's because you have no other shelter to go to or it's that you return to an unsafe situation. You know, there are a number of people who, who live here who have made a home having fled family violence, mm. you know, or you end up living somewhere where you aren't able to say no to things because, you know, the, the risk of having to leave is too great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's so 
there are so many serious concerns about the way that this is being handled and, um, you know, the, the active production of harm that this eviction, um, you know, these eviction notices have caused. Now, have you received any support from individual councillors or other local government members for the campaign to stay at Techno Park? And do you have any messages that you would like to send to the council now? Uh, we have received support from exactly one Hobson's Bay councillor. Her name is Daria Kellender. Uh, we've met with other councillors a couple of weeks ago. We met with them and we asked if they supported us. And if they weren't sure yet, what was the obstacle for them? Their answers were... They didn't fully understand planning, they didn't fully understand the law, and they didn't fully understand their powers as councillors. Um, you know, we we urge them, given the very serious implications for people's lives and futures, that they all go and seek independent advice about all of those questions that they have so that they can take an educated position on how they're going to act here because to, to, to not act is also a choice that also impacts people's lives. Um, I haven't heard from any of the other councillors since then, but I would continue to urge them to do the same. Mm. I mean, it's grim that their response was they didn't know their responsibilities. Um, you know, this is playing with people's lives and it's, it's just, you know, can't, can't overstate how serious this is. Now, residents of Techno Park Drive have organised a rally on Tuesday the 8th of August prior to the next Hobson's Bay Council meeting. How can people show up to support and what do you plan to achieve with this action? Yeah, please, if you can, come to our rally. We'll be meeting at 5.30pm on Tuesday at Logan Reserve and then marching up to the, the council meeting, which is about a 10-minute walk um, away. Uh, we want to show the council and the councillors at Hobson's Bay that people in the community really care about what happens at Techno Park and are paying attention. And we also want to show that to, you know, other residents too. The council's treated people at Techno Park as those people are absolutely disposable and... The care from our community and people turning up in that way really tells us that we are not. Mm, absolutely. And will you be attending the meeting afterwards? Is that a possibility? Uh, yes, I'll be. At, well, look, I'll try to attend. Basically, the council has a, a you have to register for the meeting. And then two days later, you get an email saying whether or not you got in. So um, certainly... We will all be registering and attempting to attend the meeting, um, but we, got, we won't know till Monday um, who got a ticket. Yeah, I mean, you know, it stands to reason that everybody who's been affected by the eviction notices should be able to be present at, at such a, you know, at, at a meeting that where, where these issues are going to be potentially discussed. And I feel like... Um, you know, everybody who is listening right now should definitely make the effort to to head down next Tuesday. Um, and if people can't get there, I know you've got a change.org petition, which we'll put in our show notes, um, and we'll share links to your socials as well. Um, but Lara, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us this morning. Thank you so much, Priya. That was Lara Week, resident of Techno Park Drive in Williamstown, talking to Priya about their campaign to stay in their homes in the face of eviction notices by the council. Uh, we will link to the um, more information about the campaign as well as their petition in our show notes later today. So if you wanted to support the cause, um, definitely check out 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Breakfast. We'll be right back after these messages.
Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Three CR needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just forty dollars concession, eighty dollars waged, one hundred and fifty dollars for a band or organisation, and three hundred dollars solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. We're going to play a track for you next um, by BVT. BVT is a Sydney-based hip-hop, R&B artist, beatboxer, producer, actor and voiceover artist. As a queer person of colour, BVT's mission is to bridge the gap between the LGBTQI plus community and mainstream hip-hop while decolonizing and reclaiming space. This is their song La Lucky. This song does come with the language warnings, so please come back in three minutes if that bothers you. So you can keep them shackles, Mr. Gray. I'm the black apple. Get a taste of this tomboy tempo. Keep the pace up high, mommy. When they always got their eyes on me. I'm so sad, yummy. Is it cause I'm so lucky? Is it cause I'm guapo? I'm a something that your cousins just want me. I got tinted on the door. Boy, if I'm too bad, I your love, though. I know, I know. Light skin like Americano. Mixed race color, hollow, hollow. Shout out to the funnel, funnel. Buckler's a rainbow flag. And the coach ain't holding me back. Keep my name in the sheets when you see me. You don't wanna see, you wanna bet to me, even if it means you, for up to me, no. You just 
the key gate keeping me from wanna be no Is it jealousy? Cause you wanna be as free as me when I feel my people Every time I breathe, I says to speak, telling me stand up and free the people That was La Lucky by BVT. Professor Nicola Henry is a sociolegal scholar with over 20 years ex- research experience in the sexual violence field. Her research on technology facilitated sexual violence and image-based sexual abuse, colloquially known as revenge porn, has had a significant impact on law policy and working on uh, and educational reform, including legislative change in multiple Australian jurisdictions. Nicola is currently working on an ARC Future Fellowship on digital platforms and image-based sexual abuse and is the lead researcher behind the creation of UmiBot, an AI chatbot that helps people report incidents of image-based abuse and find support. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Nicola. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been researching the impacts of sexual violence and harassment for a while now. Um, how has the development of technology and particularly AI changed how women especially experience this in online spaces? So artificial intelligence, as you know, is developing at a rapid speed. So chat GPT is, of course, a good example of where we're at with AI, as is the phenomenon of deep fakes. So you might have heard that term. It refers to the creation of highly realistic fake videos where people's faces are stitched onto other people's bodies. So the technology is rapidly developing, and we've always had that with technology, of course. And with that comes some exciting and wonderful innovations. But on the flip side, there are many concerning outcomes. Deep fakes and AI-generated porn, for instance, can be weaponised and used for malicious purposes, including financial fraud, disinformation, dissemination, and also sex extortion. Yeah, um, there's a really worrying statistic by a research company uh, that has tracked online deepfake videos since the de- uh, December of 2018 and has consistently found that between 90% and 95% of them are non-consensual porn and about 90% of that is non-consensual porn of women. So, you know, this is obviously incredibly concerning for women in particular. Can you talk about some of the impacts of, you know, things like deepfake porn? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that, that company um, have um, tracked um, deep fakes as growing in popularity um, in their report um, they noted that between December 2018 and August 2019 that there'd been an increase by 100% of deep fake videos and as you mentioned uh, the majority of the deep fake videos um, are of um, de- are deep fake pornography and most of those images are of women, um, mostly female actresses and musicians um, but also um, there are deep fakes can be easily created of not just celebrities but of ordinary people and 
deep fakes are increasingly being used by scammers. Um, so, for instance, they can uh, scrape your photos and videos on your social media to create fake pornography and then use that frustration um, to share those images with um, your friends and family and online contacts. So, uh, you know, there are some serious issues around the um, creation of deep fakes. Um, in terms of impacts, uh, it's, we would call this a form of image-based sexual abuse because these images are non-consensual. Um, for many victims, it's an invasion of privacy and a violation of their right to dignity, sexual autonomy and freedom ex of expression. Uh, so for some people, they describe feeling sick and disgusted and angry and degraded and dehumanised. Um, and so it, the, the, there are serious impacts for people when fake videos or fake images are created of them. Yeah, and I think one of the main issues here is that of consent. Um, you know, similar to the violence that women experience in the physical world, in online spaces, this is a way to kind of remove consent and, um, you know, dehumanize a woman without without her own consent. And I think that's, you know, one of the main issues of this situation. Um, and we can see that, you know, on the one hand, AI is being used in this really concerning manner. But on the other hand, um, research that you've led has led to the creation of an AI bot that actually helps people experiencing online harassment. You know, can you tell us a bit about Umibot and how that came into being? Yeah, sure. So um, I had um, been involved in an um, Australian Research Council discovery project a few years ago and we did semi-structured interviews with 75 victim survivors of image-based abuse in Australia, New Zealand and the UK. And one of the key findings of that study was that while victim survivors were quite diverse in terms of the nature of their experiences and the impacts of the abuse, um, there were some strikingly common experiences for victim survivors of image-based abuse. So those um, experiences included that many people didn't know that what had happened to them was a wrong or a criminal offence. They didn't know that they could do anything about it. They didn't know where to go for help. They felt often overwhelmed by the information that they could or they couldn't find online. They often experienced judgment and blame from others. Many people didn't want to talk about their experiences with another person. And yet for nearly every single person that we spoke to, they all wanted the issue to go away or they wanted the content to be taken down, removed or deleted. They wanted some kind of help um, to get them through this experience. So I came up with the idea of a trauma-informed, victim-centric and research-based chatbot um, that could be a potential solution to some of the issues that victim survivors had told me about in the interviews that I conducted a few years ago. So Yumibot is an uh, informational tool, so it's not a tool that someone can use to report an experience of image-based abuse. It's really to get information about what the next steps are, what the options are for reporting, um, for instance, reporting to the eSafety Commissioner, reporting to a digital platform or reporting to the police. But it also is a tool that people can use to find out where to go for help. So, um, you know, who, which kind of services are available um, to get help for the experience that they've had. Um, and also it's an informational tool for people to find out about what the laws are in Australia in relation to image-based abuse. So really it's a, a stepping stone for people who might not be ready to 
speak to another human person about their experiences, but it's not a substitute for professional support or assistance. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, um, it's a really great first step for people who are looking for information, um, people who might not want to, you know, divulge their identity, but who just kind of want to know the first steps um, in the process. Um, is is AI, is something like Yumibot able to learn empathy? Yumi doesn't learn from the users. And the reason we um, did it that way is because some chatbots, have been known where they they learn from the interactions that they have with users using AI and machine learning. They learn terrible things. So if you had someone going in and teaching the bot um, to be racist or sexist, then obviously that can have extremely serious consequences for people who are using this tool. So we've, we've got very careful training around the chatbot. We only teach Yumi... Uh, sorry, Yumi only learns what we teach so we have about 500 pages of content that we have written and we have fed into the chatbot. So when someone asks a question in the chatbot or they press one of the buttons, um, so for instance, if they were to type in, what is image-based abuse? The response that they will receive is something that we have crafted, so not something that the machine learns itself. Um, and we've, as I said, done that very carefully to ensure safety and security and, you know, the appropriateness of those responses. And so through those the, the 500 pages of content that we've created for the chatbot, we've very carefully crafted that to be empathetic and trauma-informed. So, for instance, if someone was to type in into the chatbot, um, I want to harm myself, we have um, crafted a very carefully worded response um, to um, to empathise with the, the person about their feelings of, um, let's say, suicidal ideation or feelings of wanting to harm themselves. And then we have a lot of information about where to go for help. And that's really important also for people who disclose sexual violence or domestic violence to the chatbot. We've made sure that people who do disclose those experiences have a trauma-informed, empathetic response so that they feel supported and they know what their next steps are if they wish to um, pursue those steps. That sounds um, that sounds really great. Have you had any feedback from users about what Yumibot is like to use? We have had some feedback. We are um, we have a feedback form on the chatbot, so a user can fill that out. And we've had some really positive experiences so far. We are also doing interviews with victim survivors of image-based abuse and we're just in the process of collecting the data on people's experiences of reporting to platforms or of um, reporting to the police, but we also are asking those victim survivor participants in our interviews about um, what it's like to speak to Yumi and, and we're getting some really great feedback on, on that. Um, we have had um, many users of the tool so far, but we are hoping to have more. So it's great <laughs> to do this interview. Um, we're hoping that more people use the tool. Um, and we um, hope in the future that we can roll out a second version of Yumibot based on all the great feedback that we're receiving through those interviews and through the, the feedback server that we have on the chatbot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, speaking of reporting, is there legal recourse when it comes to AI-generated images for victim survivors? There is. It depends. Um, I just wanted to make two. Dis uh, sorry, a distinction here. One is you have deep fakes, and um, that is the um, creation of a fake video where a person's face is stitched onto a, a 
another person's body. So it looks as if they're performing, say, a sexual act in the video. But you also have AI-generated porn that is fake, that doesn't doesn't involve a real person. Um, So in relation to deep fakes of a real person, in Australia there are laws in place um, that make it a criminal offence to share um, digitally altered images We also have the Australian Online Safety Act, which provides a civil remedy scheme for a range of online harms, including the non-consensual sharing of digitally altered images, which includes deep fakes. But in relation to AI-generated fake porn, where there's no real person, there are no laws in place to deal with that. Um, And this is a complicated, newer issue um, that we need to have more discussion about in terms of laws and in terms of policies. Um, in, in relation to deep fakes on on digital platforms, there are some platforms that explicitly prohibit um, deep fake pornography. So, just by way of example, Reddit has um, a policy um, around the, you know prohibiting the non consensual sharing of um, deep fake images, and there's a range of other platforms that have those um, policies in place as well. Yeah, it sounds like, um, you know, different platforms are catching up to the kind of um, image-based abuse that's going on and hopefully, you know, we see more of that happening. Um, what difference are you hoping that, you know, this version and the new version of YumiBot will make for not only victim survivors but bystanders and perpetrators as well? So, yes, so the um, Unibot does provide a lot of information to victim survivors of image-based abuse and we're hoping that, people can get more information. And as the saying goes, information is power. It's really disempowering when you've had a horrible experience where something's happened without your consent and you don't know what to do. It's it's, um, important that people have somewhere they can go to where they feel like there's trusted information that's delivered in an empathetic and trauma-informed way. So we do hope that people who use the tool will, will learn some stuff about what they can do and can get the help that they need, whether that's reporting to a platform or to the police or to um, the e-safety commissioner or to a school or et cetera, or whether it's just getting some support um, through a support service. So we really do hope um, that it's useful for victim survivors. And in relation to bystanders, the chatbot does also have information for people who are supporting someone who's going through this experience. So, for instance, a teacher or a parent or a friend can use Unibot to find out what kind of things, what what are the right things to say to someone who's had this experience, what are the options for the person that they're supporting in terms of reporting or seeking help or what kind of laws are in place. And finally, we do also have a little bit of information on our chatbot for people who have perpetrated image-based abuse. So we do have, um, we do like to think of Unibot being a kind of prevention tool and in the future I think there's a lot of um, scope to develop digital tools to prevent um, image-based abuse and other forms of online harm or offline harms from happening in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, Nicola, that's all we have time for today but um, thank you for that really interesting conversation about both the, you know, extreme downfall of um, AI as well as the ways in which it can actually be useful and it can be used as a helpful tool um, So we really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. So that was Professor Nicola Henry uh, 
talking to us about the impact of AI on deepfakes and women's safety online, as well as the use of AI to help people impacted by image-based abuse online. You can visit umibot at umi.rmit.edu.au. And if parts of that conversation brought anything up for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be right back with a track after these messages. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how Three CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play you a track now. This is Greta Ray's latest release, Don't Date the Teenager. I saw your photo on my phone when I was 18 Fresh out the shower and fresh onto the music scene Smart and successful, highly impressionable was I then And I was fine then You seem so gentlemanly, tender, sensitive, romantic Your fast infatuation with me made my parents panic Talk with you in a dim lit room. We were on route 
That was Don't Date the Teenager by Greta Ray. Vanessa Keogh is a conservation scientist with a focus on ending deforestation in Australia. Vanessa is joining us on the show this morning to talk about the development of WWF Australia's first trees scorecard, which has revealed Australia has the highest rates of deforestation in the developed world. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. So can we start by just talking about this scorecard and how states and territories were assessed? What was taken into consideration? Yeah, so this is, um, as you said, it's a tree scorecard. So what um, WF has done is assessed how each um, government, so state, territory and the federal government, um, are going at, um, at protecting and restoring trees. And we've focused on trees um, to highlight that trees are just so important. You know, they they produce the oxygen that we breathe. They provide um, homes for a whole range of wildlife, so from koalas to possums to owls. They also um, pull carbon out of the atmosphere, which is so important in a warming climate, and store that carbon away. And they also have been found to be really important for our health and well-being. So this scorecard is looking at how um, governments are going at protecting and restoring our trees. That sounds like a really important piece of research. Um, what were the results of the scorecard and what are some of the impacts that deforestation has actually had in the states and territories? Yes, yeah, so the so I said the scorecard looks at all all governments. Um, and at the top of the leaderboard was actually South Australia. So the scorecard looks at all things around um, barren forest loss and forest degradation and the things that are impacting on our trees. And the main two things it looks at um, is land clearing and native forest logging. And so South Australia at the top of the le- at the leaderboard um, shows that they have um, ended native forest logging and they also have relatively low rates of deforestation. Second was um, Australian Cop- Capital Territory, which is similar to um, South Australia when it comes to those two things. And then in third place was actually Victoria. So Victoria came in third um, and they announced um, just this year an end to native forest logging, um, which will be ending next year. And so that was a, a last minute addition to the scorecard and actually saw Victoria go up the leaderboard um, off the back of that announcement. So we really um, welcome that announcement and I think that's a great thing for um, forests in Victoria. Incredible. Is there a reason that the scorecard was created now? Well, I think we're, the, the time is really now. I mean, time is really running out to stop and to protect our to protect our forests. So currently we're losing two, two trees every second and that's about 93 trees each minute. So this rate of deforestation in Australia actually sees um, the, um, Australia ranked as one of the global deforestation fronts. So WDF International did an assessment a few years ago which looked at deforestation fronts around the world and Australia, Eastern Australia, was listed um, in that report. So they're one of only 24 countries um, in that report and it shows that that um, Australia is up there with um, nations like Congo, Indonesia, and we're the only developed nation on that list. So it shows that we still have a bit of work to do when it comes to ending deforestation um, in Australia. Yeah, definitely. And I was quite surprised to learn that Australia was, you know, leading in the, globally in deforestation. That's not the sort of... Um, uh, image Australia has globally, I don't think. Um, so why why is it that we're at such high rates of deforestation? There's a number of drivers of deforestation in Australia, um, but when you look at the statistics, most of it comes down, most of the um, trees are cleared to make way for pastures um, for livestock production, so for the, for the meat that people eat and for livestock production. So 
That seems to be the main driver. On top of that, there's also industry and mining and urban development, but um, agriculture seems to be the main driver. Okay. Um, and what about consultation with, you know, Indigenous communities in the states and territories? Is that uh, commonly done before, you know, deforestation occurs? No, I mean, a lot of, most of the time, no. I mean, in the in native forest logging space, there is a there is um, growing um, engagement with traditional owners, but in the deforestation space, especially on agricultural land, um, it's on private land and, and that engagement doesn't seem to happen. We were, one of the things that we've noted in the scorecard is how we want to work with traditional owners going forward to understand what they want, what, what they would have like, they would like to be involved um, in this space, um, in native forest logging um, and in deforestation. So that's something we really want to um, focus more on in the next scorecard. Yeah, that's, I think that's, you know, really important um, across the country to make sure that, you know, everything is done with con consultation with um, the local Indigenous communities. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned before that, you know, we're up there with Indonesia and Congo. Um, can you give us a bit of, you know, for listeners who might not know, um, a bit of a comparison, what's going on there versus what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting when you look across the globe. So when you look at the deforestation in Australia, it's generally, um, we have a lot of woodland as well as forests. And so the ecosystems, you know, those, those habitat types that we're impacting are quite different than in those parts of the world. A lot of those systems are a tropical rainforest that's getting impacted um, and has impacts on, you know, on obviously on carbon and on habitat and on, and on people's livelihoods. So it's quite different. In the Australian context, you know, we're, we're, we are a developed nation and it's also really important to note that there are a lot of um, farmers and livestock producers out there who are able to, you know, successfully, you know, make an income and produce livestock without de without turning to deforestation. And I suppose they're those, they're, we want to shine a light on that, that it is possible um, to have livestock produ production without deforestation. Yeah, definitely. How can listeners help make a difference and what are some things that you know WWF Australia is doing to put an end to this level of deforestation? Um, part of the scorecard we have um, got a petition running so you can jump onto our website and sign the petition that just sends a message to your to your government um, to your state government and to the federal government that you that people care about deforestation and they actually want to see an end to it that deforestation that um, deforestation petition pulls out the, the findings of the scorecard and says this is what each government must do um, to end um, end deforestation and native forest logging in that state. The other thing people can really do um, is look at their, their retailers. So look at their retailers that sell timber or that sell, sell meat or other things that can be linked to deforestation and actually ask their retailer, what are they doing about making sure that they're not adding to this deforestation in Australia? Um, I think that's really key. And even things, simple things like making sure the paper you buy is FSC um, paper or you know, there's, there's a whole range of things that consumers can do that really can drive this change. I think with the consumer demand for deforestation-free products, I think that will really help um, turn the tables in, in Australia. Definitely. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. That was, um, it, it's really an important conversation, I think, to have and people should be aware that, you know, uh, we are at this level of, of deforestation and um, we can make changes. Um, so thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. 
So that was a conversation I had with Vanessa Keogh from WWF Australia about the really shocking rates of deforestation here in Australia. We're going to a track next. Purity Ring is a Canadian electronic pop band from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, formed in 2010. And this track is from their 2012 album Shrines. It's called Fine Shrine. Fine Shrine by Purity Ring. 
Up next, we're talking to disability advocate Dr Emily Steele about artificial intelligence and the rights of persons with disabilities. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Emily. Thanks for having me. The UN's Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities published a thematic report, Artificial Intelligence and the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, on the 28th of December 2021. Could you please give us a brief overview of this report and its significance? Well, uh, the significance is that we've historically um, experienced a lot of discrimination as um, people with disability. And what we're looking at with artificial intelligence is uh, a new tool uh, that helps should help us to make decisions um, through the way that it can um, predict and calculate uh, with larger data sets than ever before and more quickly than ever before. Uh, but the risks are that where there is bias in algorithms used by artificial intelligence, it could discriminate against people with disability or against older people, which is, um, in a sense, just repeating what's happened in the past rather than learning from that to make a, a fairer world. Yeah, that's um, that's a really great, you know, overview and a re- and a great report um, that's coming out of the UN. AI can have positive benefits and be deployed to assist persons with a disability in different ways. Could you talk us through ways in which AI can be beneficial? Yeah, and and AI has a lot of potential for all of us, but also specifically for people with disability and for older people. So I'm quite excited that, about the opportunities that AI has. Um, so at its best, artificial intelligence can can understand and learn from the diversity of humans that are out there and design uh, more flexible systems that um, really account for all of that diversity and make a more accessible world. So I guess some examples of that are systems like artificial intelligence is being used in um, urban sidewalks projects where they're creating really rich and open data sets that capture all sorts of features in the environment, like um, the how steep a sidewalk is, where there are curb cuts, where there are obstacles. Um, so not only can individuals plan their routes to get around the places that they live and visit, but also the people making public policy decisions can more efficiently and fairly allocate resources to give us better sidewalks so that everyone can get around more easily. And another example is there's a a project, um, Euphonia, and they're collecting uh, really diverse and atypical speech patterns from people. And so what that means is that anyone who's using um, voice interaction with artificial intelligence is less likely to be excluded just because their speech um, patterns might not fit into um, a, a, a typical speech pattern that, that happens when you only sample um, a, a less diverse um, population. Mm, it's great to hear about the positives that uh, AI can bring to uh, people. And you did touch on this earlier, just but we're curious about the concerns that AI can 
or may replicate and encode historic discrimination against disabled people. Would you mind telling our listeners a bit more about this? Yeah, so what what can happen is um, uh, an artificial intelligence um, system, it it doesn't replace our human decisions, um, but it's built on um, a lot of data and um, traditionally, um, what happens when you collect a lot of data is that you you see a lot of um, common points in the middle of a data set, but sometimes there's the um, what what um, data analysts would call the outliers, where people who are diverse or different in in ways um, are like the the dots on the end of the bell curve. And what some people do is actually um, dismiss or remove those outliers, whereas actually um, it's, it's the outliers in our society who make the world really interesting. So what the, the most advanced people working in artificial intelligence are doing is actually working with the outliers and really um, curating the data sets to make sure that we get the most diverse people in those data sets and design for them um, to have really flexible systems. Otherwise, what happens is that people can be discriminated against based on some of the attributes that, that have traditionally been discriminated against, like age, sex at birth, um, gender identity, ethnicity or impairment. Um, so what we need to understand is that um, artificial intelligence is just a tool for us and we need to... Um, try and have a level of transparency so that we can make better decisions with the artificial intelligence that are also um, fair decisions. That's really great that, you know, um, there is the possibility of being really intentional about avoiding um, historic discrimination. Um, Are there any other ways in which AI can be harmful towards people with disabilities that primarily concern you? I think... um, one of the biggest challenges for all of us is that we often don't know when we're interacting with AI and and we don't necessarily know how um, uh, what's happening in the background of artificial intelligence for it to then maybe present the options to us, which could be things like um, route finding if you're walking or, or driving or riding a bike or it could be things like making a decision, um, uh, an important financial decision or family decision, um, or, or it could be using things like um, diagnostics for diagnosing um, health conditions um, or providing legal advice. So the challenge for us is that we need to have a sense of when and where artificial intelligence is being used and, and what kind of um, machine learning uh, is being trained on because there are, are different kinds that, that have different levels of control by humans. Um, and then uh, I guess still what a lot of older people and people with disability, like anyone else, want is the ability to um, make decisions for themselves and be informed but also have the opportunity to check where that information is coming from and whether it can be relied on. Mm, I think you make a really great point there in that people are often quick to uh, 
assume that technology is uh, helpful and neutral and making the uh, most, yeah, correct in inverted commas decision. And so we do need to remember that it is moving very quickly and there are people and organisations behind the creation of this technology and so we're not, um, yeah, it's not this all-knowing thing, unfortunately. Um, in their submission to the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law set out several recommendations regarding the design, development and use of AI in accordance with international law on the rights of persons with disabilities. These recommendations included the development of AI that is inclusive and accessible to persons with disabilities and also looking into existing AI and ensuring that these technologies are appropriately adapted to accommodate the needs of persons with disabilities. So to wrap up this conversation this morning, what would you like to see from states and private bodies when it comes to AI and the rights of persons with disabilities? Well, the saying in the disability community goes, um, nothing without us. So, uh, and that, that's moved on from being nothing about us without us. But recognising that disability is so prevalent in our society that so many people um, experience disability at some point in their lives. So what we need to make sure is that we have the most diverse groups of people involved in developing, curating and maintaining our artificial intelligence systems so that we have um, the diversity feeding into it and scrutinising it at every stage. And that's called co-design and that's a really important part of universal design. So we need to really always um, be thinking about who is involved um, uh, both in the decision-making in the data sets, and, and it will be challenging because um, particularly for the people who are the most extreme outliers, the, the, have the most unique um, needs, they, um, the challenge there is we want their data, we want them to be part of the data set, but that um, brings with it um, issues of privacy. So regulation in this space will always be um, really tricky and the regulation always... Um, comes after the technology development. But the more that we see um, people with disability and other diverse groups represented and actively involved in all stages, the more likely it is that we will have um, fair systems that, that have a level of transparency that means that we can hopefully find them really useful and beneficial and um, take the world to a more inclusive space. I think that's a, a great note to finish on as well. I'm quite familiar with the phrase nothing about us without us, but that's such a great point that it's it's beyond that. It is just nothing without us. And that goes for so many underrepresented communities that we can only move forward and kind of have things that work for everyone when people are included in conversations from the get-go. So thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning, Emily, to talk about this topic. Thanks very much. So we've been chatting with Dr. Emily Steele, who is an occupational therapist, lecturer and researcher advocating for the accessibility and inclusion of um, persons with disability uh, and it, the pros and cons of AI. Um, we will link to the report we've been talking about in our show notes later today for any listeners who are interested in reading that. 
We will be right back with our final interview for the morning after this. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Hey everyone, this is Jen Cloer. I'm here at 3CR Radical Radio and it's just a little reminder that you might have forgotten to subscribe so why don't you do it now? Jump on the phone 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Let's keep independent community radio alive. The Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. For our last AI conversation this morning, we have Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch to talk about facial recognition technology and the implications it has with over-policing. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lizzie, artificial intelligence development and automation are really ramping up and we hear so much about AI and we have spoken about AI this morning on the show, but we realised we were really wanting someone to start by telling the listeners, what is AI? Oh, I think it's a great place to start, actually. Um, there is a researcher called Kate Crawford who's Australian, but she is based out of New York. She has a book on um, AI called Atlas of AI, and she her definition, I think, is a good one. She says artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. Uh, and I think that's a good place to start. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that computer scientists might define it, but also different ways in which industry figures might use it, and then, of course, how politicians might try to wield it. And so I think all these different actors are kind of using a different definition, but I think the important thing to remember is that these things are human creations, uh, that they rely on material resources like computing power, uh, like data sets that have been collected from the real world, and that they are uh, capable of being regulated, that it's not some 
supernatural being that is smarter than us, but it's actually something we can bring within our control and direct to what we wish to do. And so I think that's a that's a good starting place, but of course the actual more substantive question is, is far more complicated and, and situated within a political economy. Mm, totally. That's so interesting that even something that is seen as being yeah modern and the future is like really just rooted in definition of what humans create um on that note actually in a 2021 webinar titled artificial intelligence can australia chart a different course on ai you pointed out that technology is often treated as a neutral or better version of human decision making can you talk a bit about why this is a pitfall yeah, I think there's a perception that if a computer has analysed data and, uh, you know, fed it into an algorithm, uh, then the answer that it comes up with isn't going to be confused or muddled by uh, fallacies or tendencies that humans have in their decision-making and that there's something much more objective and much more superior in many ways than the process of human decision-making. And I think there's a bit of a problem there for a few different reasons. I mean, I think firstly, often how we program these machines can have a particular intention, but then the outcome is different. Or perhaps that's also being generous at times. There's a, um, a theorist, Stafford Beers, who's big in cybernetics, and he says the purpose of a system is what it does. So if the outcomes aren't working, uh, it depends on, I think, the power of the people who these systems are deployed against to be able to advocate for their own interests. So that's one component. I think mistakes in how we design these systems that are often borne by vulnerable people. Um, and, I, I mean, I think more generally there's a real utility for government in claiming, for example, that more uh, neutral objective decision-making is superior to the fallacies of humanity uh, and it justifies all sorts of policies where those outcomes might suit the interests of politicians and the voices of those who are disenfranchised don't get to be heard to object to the harms being caused. So I think there's a real political value for certain classes of society in, in elevating computer decision-making above that of humans because it justifies, I think, sometimes quite terrible policy making um, and, and it's, it's a convenient way of defending it. Mm, it removes accountability from the people that we elect to make those decisions. Mm. They get to Indeed. go, sorry, the, the computer the computer said so. Um, on what you were just saying as well, we were just joined by Dr Emily Steele as well, talking about artificial intelligence and uh, its potential benefits but also downfalls for people with disabilities. And I think just what you were saying about it's, it's who creates the system and who's designing it and so just reinforcing that, you know, if it is we're trying to make a tool that will help someone with a disability, then making sure that they're in the process uh, on consultation and how it's designed as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that's a critical component of the deployment of any system. I don't think you can ever expect that a computer system will be um, infallible or accurate or work as intended. It's very clearly the history of computer science that that's not true, right? So all you can do is really guard against that and make sure you've got systems in place to correct mistakes, to make sure those who are harmed have an avenue for redress so that there's an accurate feedback loop so that people designing these systems can make them improve. And if those things aren't there, then there's something else going on. There's some other uh, political agenda at play um, because without those key mechanisms, you're not getting a system that actually functions as intended. Totally. And that is a great segue into my next topic, which is um, about facial recognition technology. So I'm hoping you can tell the listeners a bit about that technology and the potential issues that may arise if it becomes a commonplace tool that we use. 
Yeah, so facial recognition technology is obviously uh, a field of huge investment by industry and, and government, I think, is, is in part subsidising that. Uh, there's a lot of questions about its accuracy at this stage. And there's, and there's real questions as to whether the accuracy can ever get to a point of, uh, of, of comfort for many people because faces are inherently... Um, and inherently quite unique. So there, there's a question around that. But, but obviously there's some companies at least who claim to have high-quality facial recognition systems. And there's different kinds, like there's being able to identify a one-to-one. So when you unlock your phone, that's like using a fingerprint or a passcode. It's a one-to-one relationship. There's one-to-many, so identifying someone in a crowd, being able to distinguish an individual within many. And then, of course, there's things like emotional reading, um, you know, whether somebody's happy or sad by using facial recognition technology. And I think as we move along that, that path, you can see how uh, inaccuracies or cultural kind of um, specificities might creep in and compromise the accuracy of the system. Um, but at the moment in Australia, facial recognition technology isn't regulated at all. There's no uh, specific regulation that relates to it. There is, of course, the Privacy Act that's woefully out of date and we're going through a process of review. And obviously, biometric information is quite personal, private information. But this is not in any way a sufficient way in which it can be regulated. And so it's not um, being used, uh, as far as we know, in, by lots of law enforcement agencies, but it has been tested and used in various places. And we know that it's being used, for example, in retail settings pretty commonly. So why, reasonably widespread use without any any formal regulation. So it's pretty alarming. Yeah, I, I find that's a major concern with a lot of technological advancements is that it does seem to take uh, a long time for our governments to catch up with the speed in which the private companies are developing said technologies. And often the regulations are being put in uh, way too late when uh, terrible outcomes have already arisen. We did just touch on it there a little bit with facial recognition um, and its use in law enforcement and if there would be the potential for over-policing. What does that, I guess, mean and what would the impacts of that be? Well, I think what we've seen in places like the United States is that um, it it accentuates the experience of those who are already over-policed. So you can imagine how that might work. If mugshots are used to train a facial recognition system, that means that those people who've already appeared in the system are more likely to be recognised again. Um, There's all sorts of other ways in which there can be overreach. I mean, there's a really appalling example in the US that Georgetown University found where there was some CCTV of an offence being committed in, in New York City and the, the police put the image through a facial recognition database uh, the FBI has, couldn't find a match. The police thought the offender looked like a um, looked like Woody Harrelson. So they put an image of Woody Harrelson into the system, found a match, and then went and arrested that person. And you can see how ridiculous that kind of policing is and how potentially fallible and mistaken... But also some poor person who's, who's probably not got access to significant resources is now facing an arrest and a possible charge arising from a pretty, pretty um, contemptible process, probably has no knowledge of that process and then has to defend themselves. And I think this kind of um, uh, shortcuts that are likely to be taken by law enforcement have real consequences for everyday people. Uh, but, you know, this is something that allows... Um, crime stats to be publicised, to be um, heralded as a new age of, of addressing crime that suits politicians, police, law enforcement pretty well. And so it does, I think, reinforce the political agenda and, and result in, uh, you know, over increasing and exacerbation of over-policing as it already exists in our society. Mm, that example you provided sounds like a Black Mirror episode to me or some sort <laughs> of horrible satirical take, but unfortunately... Uh, It is true. And yeah, again, it's just removing, I guess, accountability and speeding up processes for people that just want to be able to report that 
yeah, crime stats are down and that they're, you know, doing their job again in inverted commas um, and not thinking about... Crime stats are up because it justifies their job. So, you know, there's a bit of a, a contradiction there, I think. But, yeah, that's yeah, completely... Totally. Mm. Uh, so automated decision-making is also becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, a controversial, well-documented uh, example of this is the RoboDebt scheme. Uh, RoboDebt isn't artificial intelligence per se, but can act as a warning as it is a non-human decision-making process. What learnings do you think we should take away from this failed scheme? Uh, I think there's a few different things. I think, um, you know, we've got to improve our system of executive government and ministerial responsibility. Uh, These ministers have been found to be behaving unlawfully, essentially, through an extensive Royal Commission. That's contemptible. So it's a real failure of government. I'm not even sure it's necessarily a failure of technology. There was clearly an intention within the previous government to implement a system of... um, essentially making it like very difficult for welfare recipients because they saw that as a vote winner, they saw it as a way to cut costs of the state. And so they used then technology to assist them in that process. But from the very early days, it was clear that technology was flawed. Um, but that mendacious attitude is really what propelled us along. So I think if, if politicians have got an agenda, they can use often try and use technology to advance it. In this situation, I think there was widespread acceptance there was a problem. Ultimately, quite condemning report that came out of it, I think we do really need to rebuild our systems of executive and government and ministerial responsibility to make sure these things don't happen again. Mm, Again, I guess even with AI, it's not necessarily the tool that is the issue. It's how people choose to use it or choose to define it, all of the things that we have touched on this morning. Exactly. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for this morning, but I really appreciate you coming on the show, Lizzie, to talk about AI, facial recognition and over-policing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was Lizzie O'Shea, lawyer and writer, whose commentary is regularly featured on television programs and radio. We've been talking about AI, facial recognition technology, over-policing and the dangers of automation. If you're just tuning in, you can catch the full chat via podcast later today at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. That was our last interview for this morning. Um, We had a great show today uh, as a part of our Science Week special focusing on AI. Uh, We started off with replaying a conversation from Thursday Breakfast that Priya had with Lara Week uh, a resident of Technopark Drive in Williamstown who is campaigning to save their homes um, in the wake of eviction notices issued by Hobson's Bay Council. We will link to more information on that campaign as well as the petition in our show notes later today if you would like to sign and support the residents. We then spoke with Professor Nicola Henry at 7.30 about how AI is being used to um, perpetrate violence against women online through the creation of deep fakes and um, revenge porn, um, as well as a an AI chatbot that Nicola has helped uh, create through her research that uh, aims to help people going through um, the trauma of uh, having their image used in sexually explicit um, ways online without their consent. Uh, if you are interested in more knowing about Yumibot, you can go to umi.rmit.edu.au. 
We then heard a conversation I had earlier this week with Vanessa Keo from WWF Australia about Australia's first trees scorecard and the shocking rates of deforestation in this country. We were then joined by Dr Emily Steele, a disability advocate, to talk about artificial intelligence and the rights of persons with disabilities. In that chat, we spoke about a UN special rapporteur on the rights of persons with disabilities, so that they published a report, Artificial Intelligence and the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We will link to that report in our show notes if you're interested in further reading. And lastly, just then we were joined by Lizzie O'Shea, uh, lawyer and writer and uh, chair of Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for human rights online. Lizzie was chatting with us about AI, facial recognition technology and the implications it has with over-policing. We will have a Science Week special interviews of on breakfast shows all through the week. So definitely tune in every day at 7am to hear more about AI, automation and data sovereignty. And we will be back here again next Tuesday. As always, Accent of Women is coming up next. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.